Hi, I'm Matthew from PanicAttackRecovery.com. We're a collaboration of former sufferers who are helping those currently struggling with anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia. We want to share what we know works. While our information is designed for those suffering from anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia, anyone can benefit from it. I want to explain how you can make sure that you are not missing out on any of our content. I would encourage you to visit our website, sign up for our newsletter, and get access to a massive amount of helpful content. Please visit our website at panicattackrecovery.com. Today I want to discuss self-esteem and anxiety. This is because it is a topic that we quite frequently receive questions about at Panic Attack Recovery, and I wanted to see some credible information on self-esteem and anxiety, so I did some digging, so to speak. I first located a research study through the U.S. Library of Medicine's PubMed.org. This study was carried out by the University of Basel, Switzerland, and they looked at whether self-esteem can be a good predictor of anxiety and depression. Researchers conducted a meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis refers to collectively reviewing a number of individual studies. So they conducted a meta-analysis on 77 studies of depression and 18 studies of anxiety. They carried out a longitudinal analysis of the data. This refers to studying the populations over a period of time, not just during one period of time. The data did not reveal that low self-esteem necessarily caused anxiety or depression, but the analysis found a correlation between low self-esteem and anxiety and depression. Now, from a practical standpoint, many people likely would not think it a stretch that having low self-esteem could be related to anxiety and panic attacks. However, when people have challenges with self-esteem, many of their daily frustrations may be related to self-esteem issues. For example, things as simple as daily interactions with others, even how one might act in traffic, though there can obviously be other issues at play, this is because self-esteem challenges can lead to one being overly sensitive to things, prickly, etc., more reactive. And people react differently to circumstances. Various emotional reactions can be related to self-esteem. For example, fear, anger, sadness upset, rather than getting distracted by the type of emotional reaction you are having, the key lies in considering whether there could be self-esteem issues at play, regardless of the emotions that you encounter. This is a huge insight for many people, because some folks believe that certain emotions would not be related to something they would consider touchy-feely, like self-esteem, but they can be just that. If you don't tackle the self-esteem issues, then you don't ever get to the root of the problem. This information on self-esteem and how it can be related to our various sensitivities in life and other issues in life comes from the work of Dr. David Burns. And he has done a great deal of work with patients who have suffered a variety of difficulties. And he discusses in great detail in much of his work, self-esteem and how other areas of our life, anxiety, depression can be related to self-esteem issues. But there is much we can do. But just to expand for a moment, the problem too with these small annoyances. So whether it's just how we react to things in life is over time they can take their toll on you and they might make you feel really low in mood and self-esteem because you might begin to buy into all of these thoughts and conclude that you are really an inferior human being. In other words, because you're so challenged by these issues 
or these issues get on your nerves so much, then for some reason you can't handle it and you must be really inferior. And you conclude there's nothing you can do about that. That's just the way you are. While everyone has a tendency to compare themselves to others, some people take this to extremes. If you value your self-worth, which goes much beyond merely being competitive, I'm not talking about being competitive, but if you value your true self-worth on the basis of always using others as your frame of reference, then your self-esteem will fluctuate all of the time. If you allow the external world to dictate your self-worth, then you will find yourself feeling down and anxious whenever others appear to have accomplished more. Although this would seem to be an unreasonable standard for anyone to hold themselves to, many people do just that. The most important thing to realize is that your self-worth is not something that should be measured relative to others. Rather, as humans, we all have equal self-worth. We are all individuals. We each have different life experiences and genetics. So when you think about it, comparing yourself to others in terms of worth is never really accurate. Instead, you can prepare for your interactions with others that might often make you nervous or uncomfortable by reminding yourself that self-worth is not relative to your career or your accomplishments. Try asking yourself the following question. Am I going to compare my self-worth to others? Or instead recognize that I'm equal to others in this regard. But there's more here. There are specific techniques you can employ. To understand these techniques, I want to talk about the fact that the correlation between self-esteem, emotions, and specifically anxiety is not surprising. When we think about cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and more precisely the model of CBT, we provide a great deal of information on this topic through our website and free newsletter. In short, however, CBT maintains that our thoughts cause our emotions. If we do not think highly of ourselves, then this can obviously impact our anxiety levels. By finding the cognitive distortions in our thoughts and replacing these distorted thoughts with healthier beliefs, over time we can positively affect our self-esteem. You can see a list of cognitive distortions on my website and see many examples of CBT being applied to real-life examples. However, in a few minutes, I'm going to share some more information about how you can tackle self-esteem issues. Then I will work through one specific real-life example by applying this information. Whether you want to tackle any self-esteem or any other issue related to anxiety, I don't think you can go wrong using CBT. Analyze your thoughts for cognitive distortions whenever you are feeling anxious. That's the first step. So you analyze the thoughts. Try to determine if there's a cognitive distortion present. Then substitute in the place of the distorted thought a more realistic and healthier thought. During this example, I will define the specific distortions so you do not need to leave the podcast at this time. As Dr. David Burns suggests, write down your automatic thoughts and then write down the distortions followed by healthier and more realistic thoughts. So let's look at a real life example now. Now this might not be an issue that applies to your life or it may not be a thought that you would have or think you would ever have. But that's really not the point. That's what's great about learning to use the process of CBT. If you follow along with this example, you can learn to apply it to your own thinking. Okay, here we go. Let's say that you are having a conversation with other parents about your children. Each of you are talking about your children, what you do with your children. One of the parents makes a comment in response to something you said, and you interpret the parent to be implying that you're a bad parent. 
this comment from the parent bothers you. The comment could be something like, oh, I would never do that with my son. Now, this might be a simple example, but let's move forward for the purposes of learning something here, and then you can try your own real-life experiences with this process. So in order to carry out CBT on this comment, you would first wait until you have an opportunity to do so. Because it does take some writing, you may not be able to do this in the moment. But you can come back to this later in the day, because often these things that come up in the day, comments that are made, issues that arise, they can linger with you and stick with you. So when you have the time later in the day, quickly write down the thoughts that you were having in response to what the person said to you that bothered you. The first step then, number one, is write down the automatic thoughts in response to the comments that suggest you are a bad parent. You feel that the comments suggest you are a bad parent, so what thoughts were popping into your head? Now, you would try to be as specific as possible and write down all aspects of what the other parent had said. Let's, for example, say there were more comments than just, oh, I wouldn't do that with my son. But let's say there were some specific other things said in addition to this. You would want to be precise, and then you would tackle those precise comments when you're carrying out this exercise. You would then write down the cognitive distortions that exist. In this example, I will list the possible distortions that are present and why. And this will become clearer to you. Number one, I would say mind reading is present. This is because the cognitive distortion of mind reading is defined as assuming something negative where there is no evidence to support it. Specifically, mind reading refers to assuming the intentions of others. Now, mind reading is present because just since someone had made a seemingly snide comment about your parenting doesn't mean that they think overall you are a bad parent. It may not even be that they meant to imply you were a bad parent. It could be that it wasn't something that their child would ever be comfortable engaging in, the activity, so it's not something that they would try with them. And it could be something where they don't agree with the choice you made. But again, it doesn't mean that you are a bad parent or that they think you're a bad parent. They themselves realize that people have different choices to make about their parenting. Number two, overgeneralizing is present. Overgeneralizing or overgeneralization, is defined as taking isolated cases and using them to make wider generalizations. Now, this distortion is present because even though you might agree that you displayed some bad judgment or you're messed up by doing something that the other parent didn't agree with with your child, this behavior does not generalize overall to all aspects of your parenting. It doesn't mean you're a bad parent overall, even if you buy into the fact that, okay, I messed up, maybe I shouldn't have done that with my child, etc., Number three, disqualifying the positive is present. Disqualifying the positive is defined as continually shooting down positive experiences for arbitrary ad hoc reasons. This distortion is present because you are not thinking about or you might be dismissing the other aspects of good parenting that you have carried out with your children. Just to briefly recap at this point, we have written down the thoughts and the statements that were made by the other parent. So you would write down the statements made by the other parent that bothered you, your automatic thoughts that popped into your head. After determining what distortions are present, you would then generate more accurate and healthier thoughts. So in other words, using this example, you would generate alternate responses of instances where you did things for your children that they enjoyed or that you intended to be helpful for them. This helps to balance out the negative thinking right away because you start listing evidence to the contrary that you're a bad parent. You might say, well, this maybe wasn't a good choice, but look at all these things I've done, which were obvious good choices with my children. 
that's only if you thought the um, activity that the other parent criticized you about was a bad choice. But even if you did, you could still generate alternate thoughts that make you feel better about your parenting while you're a good parent. And you balance it out. It's much fairer. Now, I will be very honest with you. When, when I'm explaining this through a podcast and you're not actually doing it and it's not a problem you might or an issue you might struggle with, you might think about this as this really isn't going to be effective. This is very arbitrary. I don't see this working. How could this work? But you actually have to carry out the activity with your own thoughts. And here's how I think about it. I think that in the moment when we get mad, we often overlook a lot of evidence to the contrary of what our opinion is. So let's say that I say to myself, I'm a bad parent. Therefore, I just am a bad parent. I'll never be a good parent. I'm a failure. But I'm not thinking about all the instances where I may have been a good parent. Or let's say that it's another example. You are thinking about your activity as an employee at an organization. You say, I'm really a bad employee because you're thinking about how you messed up, but you're not thinking about all the good work you did. So if you listed instances where you display good behavior as an employee, that would balance out and make you feel better. And that's a more realistic view of the world is that there's often more information that applies to any situation. But when we become emotional and angry, we're not looking at all those things and we're not prepared in the moment to often look at those things. But by practicing this process over time, you start to balance out your thinking much more accurately. This can become much more habitual than it would be if you just ran on automatic pilot, so to speak. And the best thing about an exercise like this is it can actually make you feel better very quickly. Within five or 10 minutes, pinpointing the distortions and then substituting healthier thoughts can make you feel better very quickly. And that's why CBT can be very powerful. However, it is the process of documenting your CBT work over time that is going to be very beneficial for your self-esteem. It is a good idea to keep this information in a file or an electronic document that you can review over time. In particular, reminding yourself of the healthier and more accurate thoughts that you've generated along the process is going to be helpful for your self-esteem. And if you keep a record of all of these exercises each day that you do them, you will have a great amount of reference material to refer to on a regular basis. Because it isn't just about doing this process on a regular basis. That's certainly a critical part, but it's also looking back. What have you learned? And often that can help to refresh you and get you back on course. By this, I mean, you might scan the various thoughts that you have documented over time and come to see the common distortions that are present. For example, when I carried out this exercise some time ago, I went back and I looked to see if there were common distortions present in much of my thinking And I came to see that personalization was a common distortion that happened to my thinking quite often. Personalization is defined as assuming you or others directly cause things when that may not have been the case. And you can also apply this to others. And an example of doing so would be blaming someone, personalizing it on behalf of the person. So saying it's their fault that I'm this way. So personalization can work both ways. You can blame others or you blame yourself. What I was referring to specifically is I was blaming myself, taking responsibility for a lot of things I shouldn't have been taking responsibility of. The only thing that I don't like about this definition a bit is that when you you first think personalization is you directly cause things, what I found more so is that I I didn't necessarily always think that I directly caused things, but I, I thought that I contributed to them. When in fact, what I was finding is it wasn't even my actions that were to blame. It was simply an issue that someone else had. 
It had nothing to do with me. When I work with people that often personalize things, what I find is they don't take 100% responsibility for what other people do, but they take a great deal of responsibility that if they had have just done something differently, then things would have turned out differently. And that really is when over time they begin to uh, blame themselves. So I just want to really clarify that personalization, and, and I think this is important to spend some time on, is not that, that you directly cause things that others do or how they behave, but that you somehow have caused or contributed to the situation. Now, it could be true when we get into a situation, we sometimes have contributed to a situation, but often what I'm talking about here is simple situations where people had a choice to behave the way they did. We didn't cause their behavior. We didn't influence their behavior. They simply acted the way they did. But often people that struggle with personalization beat themselves up saying, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently? It's my fault. Now, why this was important for me, and it could be for you too, is that I had a wider realization that as long as I personalized events in my life, I would essentially be blaming myself for others' behavior. When others behaved in a way that was offensive, it was my fault. I would then beat myself up over what they had done and what I did to cause that. When I thought about this, I realized that this was really a recipe for failure. You would just keep going in circles every day. It might seem silly, but this is a very subtle and powerful effect that personalization and other cognitive distortions can have on our lives over time. Just as I discussed earlier, we are all individuals and we have different life experiences and genetics, and therefore we are bound to behave in ways that others might not always agree with. This is going to happen on a regular basis. If I became offended every time that someone else disagreed with me, then I would not be effective in life. In particular, if I somehow hold myself responsible for others' opinions and reactions, this is not accurate nor healthy. Let's look at a simple example. If you think about political races, often one candidate might get 51% of the vote and be declared the winner. What this means is that 49% did not agree with him, or perhaps like him or her, if the political leader tried to please everyone, he would be doomed to fail and could never get anything done. Often, this could apply when an opinion about an issue or something we like doing arises. There are bound to be some people who do not agree or approve with our choices. What's my point? My point is if we personalize others' behaviors, it is totally futile. We therefore must make a choice to thicken our skin a little bit so as to live life and enjoy life. Once you do so, you will like I did, come to see that differences of opinion, and even when someone does not like us, is not something we have to own and feel bad about. We don't have to personalize it. Now, I don't mean we should act obnoxiously or without regard to others. I just mean this is something that those who possess fairly good self-esteem have learned and came to believe some time ago. If you've ever observed people who have good self-esteem, you'll often see that they can often remain quite calm in situations where someone acts perhaps inappropriately or very critical of them. It's because they have a, a thicker skin with regard to self-esteem. But as we're talking about today, you can improve your self-esteem by working on your thoughts over time and how you process the world and reality. The research I mentioned at the beginning of this episode made me ponder the following. Some anxiety sufferers might not have had this realization and they may suffer poor self-esteem because of not having learned to tackle the thoughts related to their self-esteem so their skin might be a little thinner so they can be more sensitive when it comes to others not approving of something they have done or a choice they made. Now, I'm not suggesting that personalization is the only thing that we should look for. 
you have to go through this process and discover yourself the common distortions that you possess in your thinking. I think if you do, however, you might see many things that relate to your personality and your self-esteem. Now, I realize a fair amount of content was covered in this podcast and a number of steps to the process that I've discussed. However, I would encourage you to go back and listen to this podcast as many times as you wish. For some people, such as myself, often it can be helpful to go back and listen to a podcast to ensure that I understand all the points discussed and I've had an opportunity to think about them. So sometimes going back and listening again can be very helpful. Here are the most important takeaway messages from this episode. By working on your self-esteem, you can work on your anxiety. You can remember the points and revelations about self-esteem that I've discussed in this podcast and really ponder them over time. So again, feel free to go back and listen to this as often as you like. One very important point is you must realize that your self-worth is not something that should be measured relative to others. Rather, as humans, we all have equal self-worth. We are all individuals. We have different life experiences and genetics. So when you think about it, comparing yourself to others is never really an accurate predictor of which to base healthy self-worth. Moreover, you can work on your self-esteem by using cognitive behavioral therapy on a regular basis. This process does not have to be difficult. Consistency is the key. This process does not have to be difficult. Consistency is the key. Even spending 5-10 minutes a day can be incredibly helpful. Keeping a file or electronic document on your CBT work will be very helpful over time. By having this information and collecting it over time, you can pinpoint the common distortions that affect your thinking on a regular basis. You can then tackle these common distortions that are likely affecting your self-esteem and most certainly affecting your day-to-day life. I want to explain how you can make sure that you are not missing out on any of our content. I would encourage you to visit our website, sign up for our free newsletter, and get access to a massive amount of helpful content. Please visit our website at panicattackrecovery.com. All information presented in these podcasts is provided for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for a psychologist, psychiatrist, or other healthcare provider's consultation. Please consult a psychologist, psychiatrist, or appropriate healthcare provider about the applicability of any opinions or recommendations with respect to your own panic attacks, anxiety or agoraphobia, or any other symptom or condition.